The Bob Murphy Show, episode 251. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i am pleased to be having a conversation with mary thoreau many of you may know her that she and david thoreau ran the independent institute and then david passed away earlier this year this is 2022 for those listening down the road so we're going to spend a lot of time in this conversation talking about you know her background how she met david and so forth for obvious reasons but we also do get into some of the particulars about Mary's pursuits because she had a lot of interesting stories along the way as well. Let me just read from her official bio here just to give you some foundation. So Mary L.G. Thoreau is chairman of the board of directors and chief executive officer of the Independent Institute. Having received her A.B. in economics from Stanford University, Ms. Thoreau is managing director of Lightning Ventures LP, a San Francisco Bay Area investment firm and vice president of the C.S. Lewis Society of California. And we'll touch on a lot of that stuff, as I say, in this discussion, just so that you folks at home know my relationship. So I've been working with the Independent Institute in various capacities over the years. In their journal, I had a critique of William Nordhaus's DICE model having to do with like carbon taxes and stuff. That's been useful to me over the years as I do a lot of work on energy economics. So we talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, my book, Choice, a lot of you may know that one was totally an independent institute project where, you know, David approached me and pitched me on the idea and I was very happy with the outcome. So without further ado, and we'll put links to all this stuff at bobmurphyshow.com slash 251. Here's my discussion with Mary Thoreau. Well, Mary, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. So I suppose, you know, as people can guess, a part of what we're going to talk about is David Thoreau, your late husband, David passed away back in April earlier this year of 2022 for people listening to this much later. And so what I was hoping for in this episode was just to give you a chance to sort of tell us stories, a bit of the backstory. You know, people obviously know you and David, your work through the Independent Institute, but I'm wondering if you can roll the clock back and, you know, maybe talk about what David was doing and what you were doing and then how you guys met and, you know, how your interests aligned and so forth. How far back do you want to go, Bob? Maybe when your parents met. No, <laughs> whatever you think is, I don't know, like maybe like what were you doing as of college years? Is that a good place to start? I, I don't know, because I don't know exactly what the details of the story are going to be. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you the long version and you're welcome to then edit it. I was very much raised in a home that really impressed these ideas upon a, people. I was raised in Wichita, Kansas. My parents were very good friends with Fred and Mary Koch, who are the parents of the Koch brothers, and they were all in the John Birch Society and very active in the community and pushing forth liberty and so on. Both my parents were very active in the community, and my father was very much involved in trying to spread the benefits of private property rights globally among the businesses we were in. 
was grain. And back in the 60s, the U.S. government sent a lot of grain overseas to developing countries. And the idea was there was then a credit that would be used in those countries. So dad came up with the scheme of building really low-cost housing. After World War II, his first job had been building low-cost housing for returning GIs. I mean, literally $500 starter homes. So he wanted to do that overseas, but it really, really cheap houses. So basic sort of cinder block houses that people could buy for kind of the equivalent of 50 cents a month over time. And his theory was that if people had private property, they'd have an interest in their government being one that protected private property rights. So it was his little way of spreading free enterprise globally. So that was interesting. We traveled to India and other countries growing up, so saw that the whole world wasn't like Wichita, Kansas. Mm -hmm. My mother co-founded Wichita Collegiate School, which in some circles was quite famous because it taught Austrian and free market economics in high schools. We read Mises and Hayek and Garrett Garrett and Friedman and Rose Wilder Lane and all the dystopian novels. So I was very grounded in and I really was interested in the ideas I took early admission to a small liberal arts college that was supposed to be along these lines, but I got there my freshman year and realized it wasn't that great of a place, so I dropped out. One of my sisters was married to a man going to Stanford Law School, and she said, come to California. It's the promised land. Mm -hmm. So I came out here, and we bought a house that had been rented out for 30 years and was in disrepair and overgrown. And we bought a copy of the Reader's Digest Home Improvement Guide and started fixing it up. About halfway through the year, she hauled now, me over. Now, when you say to, we, you mean you and your sister? My sister and I, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So, and the things we couldn't do, we'd hired a moonlighting firefighter who would cost like $5 an hour. He was marvelous. About halfway through that year, my sister literally dragged me over to the Stanford campus to get an application because I was convinced there was no way that Stanford would let me in, but they did on some quirk. And I declared economics as my major and sat in classes and wondered when we were going to start studying economics. Right, right. <laughs> anyway, so that was kind of my background. Well, can I ask you at that point, like, I assume even then, like Stanford, did it have a reputation as being liberal? And you did you kind of know going into it that you weren't going to be studying Mises and Hayek there? <laughs> I thought that's what economics was, but Stanford was very sort of neoclassical. And then mm -hmm. I was studying development economics. And so the head of the Stanford economics department was an avowed Maoist. This was in the 70s and mm -hmm. before sort of the horrors came out. But most of the classes were fairly mainstream. I decided I liked development economics. And most development economists were Marxists and were teaching mm -hmm. Marxist development economics. So, But there was a little adjunct department, which doesn't exist anymore, called the Food Research Institute, which was very free market. And that was agricultural economics and also some development, you know, international development economics. So I sort of hit out over there and enjoyed it a lot. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So I guess, I don't know how much you got into the mindset of the... Marxist development economists, but I suppose like they were just viewing, because where I'm coming from is like working through the World Bank or the UN or whatever, IMF, there is a sense in which the so-called capitalist countries do impose a hard yoke on the developing world. And they would just say, yep, that's capitalism for you. That's imperialism. That's what capitalism does. Whereas under Marxism, that wouldn't happen. 
But the, yeah, the Marxist development economists were literally teaching things like under the new world order, all of the children would be taken away from their parents and raised communally, which was a little bit too far for most Stanford students. It was interesting because I took one course twice. I dropped out one year due to an unfortunate event in our family midway through the quarter. And I had started taking this class. I think it was being taught by a TA. And in the class that he actually advocated, and we'll take the children away from their parents and we'll raise them communally, there was kind of an audible gasp among the the student body. Uh So the next year when I was back taking the same class again from the same fellow, and we got to that part in the curriculum, he didn't say that explicitly. He was sort of implying what the new mm-hmm. world order would be. So I raised my hand and I said, isn't the implication that, you know, children could be taken away and raised communally? And he admitted that, yes, that that is the ideal world and so on. So that was an interesting experience, too. But I knew about Peter Bauer and was reading him on the side. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit older student, so I wasn't shy about raising my hand and presenting alternative points of view, which actually my professor's really seemed to enjoy, you know, rather than just Mm -hmm. students who were sitting there like zombies writing down everything they said, you know, they, up to a certain point, they enjoyed the exchange of views. Well, I don't know if this is your view, but I remember back when I was in grad school, I was trying to debate some like leftist anarchist types, like anarcho-communists, I think, you know, they would call themselves. And that was much more fruitful than if I was debating like a Hillary Clinton fan. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, I disagree with them strongly, but they were more intellectual. You know, they didn't like the current system. They they wanted radical change. And so did I. It's just our solutions were obviously a heck of a lot different. So it Right. But they thought about the ideas more deeply than the average student or or whatever. So you're right. It's a more interesting conversation. Plus, it hones our arguments, which is an important exercise to go through to be part of the real world. And the other thing, too, was a lot of the Marxists, they were fully aware of Mises, you know, critique of socialist calculation. And they had their, you know, rejoinder, what they thought, oh, this adequately ended, but they knew of Mises critique and they had a canned response. So that was kind of impressive. Whereas, yeah, at NYU, most of my professors, you know, they may have heard of Hayek, but they, even though Mises actually had been at NYU, a lot right. of them wouldn't yeah. have known who that was. <laughs> they would have said, oh yeah, that was back before, you know, we had standards. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just let any any riffraff in, yeah. And Kersner being there. So I guess, do you know what, what was David doing around this time frame? And then how did you guys, how did so your So David overlap? was raised mostly in the New York suburbs and his mother had been a kindergarten teacher, so was very involved in his education. And she was a Goldwater Republican and active in a lot of these groups. And so when he was a teenager, she gave him conscious of a conservative and kind of instilled these conservative traditional values in him. So he was always very intent on getting the most out of life. So as a boy, he became an Eagle Scout, and then he earned an appointment to the U.S. Air Force Academy. And this was at the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So as he was at the Air Force Academy, he increasingly realized that the means of the war was not a great way of advancing the ends of a liberal society or a liberty-minded society Mm -hmm. and became very disillusioned with the military. So at the end of his third year at the academy... Mary, can I ask you... Yes. 
what about David's? Because you were saying how you were raised, like your parents were hip deep into this stuff. Were David's as well, or was he like the one that was first in his family? Yeah, his mother was very active, not only being a Goldwater Republican, but she later was a very good friend and worked closely with Phyllis Schlafly and other things. So she was a very active member of, you know, organizations that were trying to advance sort of conservative values. And again, had been a teacher and very much passed those ideas down to certainly to David and to some degree his brother, not his sister didn't really take, but uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it very much resonated with David and he was very devoted to the ideals of the American founding, always, Mm -hmm. but also understood that war didn't accord with those ideals. (laughs) So decided to um, leave the Air Force Academy. Yes, I had interrupted you. That's okay. It was was an interesting experience Mm -hmm. there for him. But, you know, he learned a lot and it certainly was a disciplining environment that instills habits that he carried with him for a lifetime. But after you resign your commission, the third year was the ideal time because if you resign after two years, then you're subject to the draft. If you resign after graduating, then you owe the Air Force five years. So after three years, he owed the Air Force two years. And in order to avoid being sent to Vietnam, he requested and was posted to an undesirable Air Force base in Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. which was something of a culture shock for him because the enlistees were generally regarded by the locals as being uneducated, you know, people. So the locals did not want to mix with people who were on the base. And then David's status had gone from being an elite member of the Air Force Academy to being essentially a grunt typist. Mm -hmm. So he ended up spending a lot of time in the base library and One day, he was flipping through books in the base library, and he came across this thin book and was going through it. And there was an essay in it that caught his eye by Friedrich Hayek called, Why I Am Not a Conservative. Mm -hmm. So he read that and was very intrigued with the message that Hayek put forth. So he went back to the base library, and he ordered all of the books that Hayek had referenced in that essay through the library, which you could do and started reading all those books. And then he started ordering the books that were referenced in those books, and so on and so on. And he developed quite an extensive reading list accordingly. He also started a correspondence with Baldy Harper at at IHS and and Leonard Reed at Fee and so on, and and started getting kind of connected into those networks. So he subsequently... After his two years at the Air Force Base and he was free, he came to Berkeley to continue studying math and engineering. And because the Air Force Academy was year-round, he had so many credits coming in that in a year he had two Bachelor of Science degrees, and in another year he had a master's degree. So, mm-hmm. But on the Berkeley campus, he encountered people such as you're talking about, the new left communists who were advocating for, you know, obviously there was a lot of anti-war activity on campus. And David was very active in that, but from a completely different, obviously, point of view of not according with the tenets of liberty, whereas the new leftists that he's talking about were talking about this was going to be the first step in remaking the world and everybody would be put into uniform and the universities would be closed and everybody would be re-educated. And a great new Soviet America would 
be dawning soon. So that was a very interesting era. David was very active in Bay Area sort of libertarian activities and so on and got to know even more people in the movement. He was involved. Mary, can I stop you? Yeah. Can you just elaborate on, you were saying what the new left, are you saying they were looking at the discontent with, I don't know what the timeline, like the LBJ and Nixon administrations and thought, this is how we're going to, they're not just mad at this, like now they're going to overthrow capitalism or you mean they were going to use the war itself? Oh, well, the anti-war sentiment, yes. So everybody was in Sproul Plaza with their tables set up and David had his table set up with sort of libertarian literature and, Mm -hmm. and a poster, which I still have, which was a wanted poster featuring Uncle Sam enlisting his crimes against humanity which was a very Uh good attention getter. And then he'd be engaging people in conversation and trying to engage them towards the classical liberal point of view. But meanwhile, the new leftists were there, also anti-war protesters. But again, yes, they were trying to build upon the anti-war sentiment to advance their new left agenda for the new great Soviet America Mm -hmm. restructuring of society. Okay. All right. So it was, was it on the college campus then that you met David for the first time? Was it literally, he was at a table and you saw his poster or, or you had met? No, I just, I learned about this later. I didn't meet David until we were both well advanced in our careers. So he subsequently, he was invited to Mont Pelerin meeting by Roger McBride and there he met Friedman and others. And what was planning to go to graduate school and Friedman said, oh, you must come to Chicago. So he went to Chicago for his mm-hmm. PhD in economics under Yale Brosen. And interestingly, given the Chicago school, he there he organized a series of lectures in Austrian economics at the <laughs> Graduate School of Business. And it culminated with two lectures by Hayek. So mm-hmm. that was an interesting thing to do. And so while he was at Chicago, he was recruited to join a new institute being formed in San Francisco called Cato. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talked to his advisor and his advisor said, well, if you leave now, you have an MBA and you can always come back and finish your PhD later. And this sounds like a really great opportunity. So he came to San Francisco and helped organize Cato. After Cato moved to DC, he became the founding president of Pacific Institute, which was later called Pacific Research Institute. Mm-hmm. And that's, I met David when he had Pacific Research Institute. So okay. among the businesses that my family was involved in was a ranch in Northern Nevada. And at Pacific, David organized a project on rangeland policy. This was the time of, I don't know if you remember, the Sagebrush Rebellion, when Western ranchers and so on were rebelling against federal range management. So David held a conference on range policy. Father Mm -hmm. became aware of his work. So when my parents were out here visiting me, dad said, I want to go by and meet this guy, David Thoreau. So I took him by there and kind of sat in the back of the room while they were talking. And I was just, I was so excited that I had no idea things like, you know, a think tank or a policy research institute existed and had been in business for several years and hadn't had any contact with anybody in sort of the intellectual spheres like this and just was really thrilled to find out that this world existed. Can I ask you, because 
you're saying because fee was like foundation for economic education, you know, Leonard Reed's organization that was more like just educating the public with like classic essays and books. Whereas you're saying these think tanks were more about policy. David knew about, I did not know about fee at the time. I did. After I met David, he told me about IHS, which was in Menlo Park. Mm-hmm. This is kind of confusing because I, I later, I had not finished at Stanford. I later went back to finish at Stanford, and IHS was right there in Menlo Park. So I'd spend Friday afternoons at IHS. They'd have these beer gatherings, and I'd talk to Walt, with Walter Block and Leonard Ligio, and mm-hmm. I met Hayek there and, and a bunch of people. So, But I hadn't been aware of those other organizations at all. David had been. Oh, okay. Okay. And partly what I was trying to understand is, is there a qualitative difference between like what Fee was doing versus like, yeah, PRI or the Cato Institute and so on? Well, you know, Fee was concentrating more on students, as was IHS, students and young scholars mm-hmm. and developing students and young scholars. IHS back then was quite small and kind of quirky. <laughs> the library was organized chronologically from when a book was acquired. <laughs> So if you, if you wanted to find something... I thought something, you were going to say by publication, but by acquisition, that makes no, no sense at all. No, it was by acquisition. So it was, if you were looking for a specific book, you could be looking for a while. But, <laughs> but it was, you know, I, it was a great oasis for me to get together again on Friday afternoons and talk to like-minded people. And I really enjoyed it. Obviously, Pacific was very involved in the kind of work that David has always done, which is producing book projects and other projects. So I started reading Pacific Research Institute books and other publications and attending events. Mm-hmm. My father joined PRI's board. And this is back before you had conference calls or Zoom calls for board meetings. So if he couldn't attend a meeting, I was invited to sit in and then I could report back to him, you know, the mm-hmm. meetings activities. So I got to know more and more about the work they were doing, and then also through that, meet a lot of people. And it was just really, I just loved it. So very grateful for it. Okay. So when you left school, like what were you doing besides, you know, meeting Hayek and sitting in on board meetings? (laughs) I was running a teleshop, a pioneering teleshopping grocery delivery business in San Francisco called the San Francisco Grocery Express. So we had a warehouse with all the groceries in it. Initially, this was in the 1980s. Initially, people would call, we had a catalog, a printed catalog, which we'd supplement with a weekly update of fresh produce, what was in season and so specials mm-hmm. and so on. Initially, people would order by telephone. And then in 1984, if you had a home computer and a 300 baud modem, you could dial into our computer and you could place your grocery order and we would deliver it to you. And then uh, later you could fax your order in when fax machines came out. And then in the late 80s, the precursor to the internet, you know, America Online. Right. And then there was a service called Prodigy, which was like America Online. And yep. we were mm-hmm. on Prodigy. So... It was a challenging and interesting business, and I was working a lot, and so, but liked having the intellectual stimulation on the side. So just to be clear, it wasn't like Instacart now where you would go to the grocery store. You actually just, you were like a, your own store. 
Yeah, it was a store that nobody could come into. It was right. literally a warehouse stocked with okay, stocked with everything. And we had a fleet of, of wow, beautiful bright red I mean, you vans. had perishables too, right? Yeah, perishables and butcher cut meats, and it was really good. And this was so. This was the '80s, the era of the yuppies. Mm-hmm. So our mm-hmm. target market was sort of threefold. There was the two income families who don't have any time, right? And so they were interested in the service, and then corporations. So businesses would be ordering, you know, paper towels and coffee and cookies and all the stuff that people in offices want. And then homebound seniors to whom we would offer a discount, especially if they ordered at certain times of the day. So that's how we sort of evened out demand. So the seniors would typically get deliveries in the mornings and the businesses during the day. And then the two career couples would be getting delivery nights and weekends. So it was certainly somewhat cyclical, but that helped. Mm-hmm. The reason I was asking the perishables is like that would sound to me like a real tough, like you got to watch your inventory and because your profit margins not all that big. If you screw something up and all the milk spoils or what, or yeah, even, it, it's even a challenge. So. We had a guy, we were near the produce market who would, we had a guy who went down there every morning when it opened at like 5 a.m. and got the produce. But yeah, it's a real challenge. Plus, it's a challenge if somebody's ordering groceries that they're not picking out, mm-hmm. we would try to get them to be as specific as possible. Like if you want your, do you want your bananas green or do you want them turning or do you want them completely right. ripe? You know, mm-hmm. kind of things like that. We would tout that, you know, unlike in a supermarket, nobody has touched your produce except for our produce person. So it's actually, you know, less manhandled, mm-hmm. so to speak, than in a store. Right. And then again, we had a deal with a butcher business and they do all the meat cut and wrapped to order. So it was really, and it, this was very early days of free range chicken and, you know, grass fed beef and all that sort of thing. So it was very high quality. And mm-hmm. the San Francisco. Now, I know I was. Go ahead. Well, I was going to transition. Yeah. Okay. Transition. That's enough about groceries. <laughs> No, it's, I was interested, but it, it was, we're having a bit of a delay here, folks, on, yeah, on the audio. Yeah, in case yeah, it yeah, looks yeah. like we're tripping over each other. <laughs> so I, we're, we're using a 300 baud modem here. Um, yeah. The uh, I probably should just mention, though, like I'm recognizing the things you're talking about. But for younger people, I mean, it's one thing to say is like just you, you know, having to order everything and like getting printed things in the mail. Like I know when I would get it was called the conservative chronicle and it was a weekly digest of all the op-eds that week from right. like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. And it was like, <gasps> like, and so now it's just people, Oh, you just go Google the person and see whatever they wrote, go to their website. or But <sighs> back then, like it was, you know, you'd get stuff in the mail yeah. and then to actually meet someone like for the longest time, I thought his name was Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> and then I actually had to meet someone who knew who he was. And he said, Oh, it's Mises. I did How would I know? Yeah, because exactly. no one I ever met had read the guy. So how would I know until I, I think it was, I went to visit Hillsdale or something and, and Richard Ebeling, I heard him say the name. So yeah, it did seem like it, like it must've been a much smaller universe of, of relevant people back then. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty easy to know most of the people. And we all went, you know, you go to pretty small conferences too. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. I've done some research on what you're talking about more recently. And I know at this point, like, the problem of the homeless is a, is a big area. Was that something that like you've been studying a, a while or is that more recent? That's more recent. 
And it's an outshoot of my involvement, the Salvation Army, but then Independent got involved because it's something that, you know, homelessness is never going to get solved until the underlying policies get changed. So it's a... Okay, well, let's return to that that, because I didn't know if that was flown out of your development work. Okay, so can you fill us in then on like the timeline of, I guess, when you and David are married and then the founding of Independent and I don't know... Which one of those is the first? The founding of Independent came first. So 1986, David and the research director at Pacific, Bruce Johnson, who had left Pacific and they founded Independent, because there'd always been a little bit of attention. David was an employee of Pacific and the board had a certain vision and David's vision was different. He really wanted an academic scholarly grade research institute that was producing peer-reviewed work that he could then apply guerrilla marketing techniques to get the ideas out Mm -hmm. into the public square and have an impact on the culture. So he started independent. At the time, I was still in the grocery business, and David was starting independent from his basement. So when he needed office equipment, he'd come use my office, you know, the copier and the fax and all the other things. Mm -hmm. And I was also helping him as much as I could with other things starting because, I mean, he was literally, he had no backing. He had no deep pockets behind him. It was literally, we've joked about it being the first garage think tank. Mm-hmm. And I was on his founding board of directors along with Neil McLeod from Liberty Fund and Ellen Hill, who was sort of a champion, a heroine of the movement and so on. So David was going around trying to raise money for this new think tank in 1986, Reagan's in the White House, and these people, he did, these business people and others that he'd approach would say things like, well, Reagan's in the White House. We've won. You know, it's time to govern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need the battle of ideas anymore. You know? And so it was a really, he was a really challenging time. He's like, okay, wants to start this thing, but not a lot of people are rushing to give him money. So he started speaking of getting things in the mail. He started a direct mail catalog called Liberty Tree. Mm-hmm. And Liberty Tree had was a glossy four-color catalog that had collectibles. It had things like, 86 was the centennial of the Statue of Liberty. So there was Statue of Liberty collectibles. There were busts of the founders, as well as books by Mises, Hayek, History, Self-Help, Harry Brown, all kinds of things, and games neckties, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And he literally taught himself the direct mail business and did a lot of innovations about it. We were mailing out a million catalogs a year. Because of my experience in grocery fulfillment, I was able to help set up a book fulfillment operation. So I was working the back end of the thing. And that's literally where the stream of revenue came for Independent to get launched. Fortunately, over the years, as the direct mail industry went to hell, uh, (laughs) Independence Program had grown and was attracting sufficient support that we could abandon Liberty Tree and concentrate full-time on Independence Program. And along the line, we got married in 1991. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so at that point, did you step away from the grocery yeah, business, I, so, I sold that? Grocery Express in the late 80s. I was approached, actually, it was approached by several people, but eventually sold it out in the late 80s. And so I 
was helping out at Independent more and more. And pretty soon I found out I was there pretty much all day, every day, <laughs> doing mm -hmm. kind of whatever needed being done and learning more and more, including, you know, help learning desktop publishing to help with the production of the catalogs and things like that. So it was very interesting. At what point, like, was there a fundraising effort to then get into, you know, out of David's garage, so to speak, and like get its own independent, no pun intended, yeah, building? Yeah, so... So once it started producing, you know, it takes a long time to produce good quality products. So once, but once those started coming out, and it's also so we were having events and so on and building up a profile, then yeah, it was, you know, there was revenue coming in and contributions coming in. So it grew pretty quickly. And David established offices in San Francisco, but the office was in a brick office building on the top floor. So when the 89 earthquake hit, it was seismically unsound. And the book warehouse for fulfilling Liberty Tree orders was, was here in Oakland. So we said, well, we'll build out some temporary mm -hmm. offices in our warehouse <laughs> and move over to Oakland. Mm -hmm. And after about 10 years in that warehouse, when we'd added, you know, one office after another, and it was right. sort of this maze of windowless offices. We said, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> so we found an office building not too far away, which also had facilities for us to be able to hold in-person events, which we did. We'd have two a month with people. We sent out a letter to all of our fellows and associates and said, you know, if, if you have a new book and you're on tour, let us know. We'd be happy to put on an event for you. And we were just inundated with, yeah, I'm going to be in California. So, so mm -hmm. we were like, okay, great. So we were putting on at least two big events every month in our office in Oakland, but it was great. And people were really enjoying having the opportunity of getting to come to these events and hear authors speak about their wonderful work and talk with, again, talk with like-minded people and find out that surprise, surprise, you weren't in fact the only person in the Bay Area who thought this way, which right. is too frequently people think they're alone. And it's important to make those connections and create those networks. Yeah, exactly. Just before I forget, when you were mentioning that David founded it independent in his garage, it reminded me, I don't know if you know Rob Bradley, Mary, but he founded the Institute for Energy Research. And he took, I think he'd be okay if I said this anecdote, that he started that and it was in his house. And I think it was in Houston, so he would be, you know, dealing with somebody as the president of the Institute for Energy Research, and they'd say, "What's your mailing address?" And he would give his, you know, his house, right? And they in Houston, and they would say, "Oh, and is, is there a suite number?" And he would just say, "No, we have the whole building." <laughs> so that was the that's way. It a was a truthful statement, but perhaps misleading. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So you you mentioned, and that was what I was going to bring up too that it, I think part of the function of having events because a lot of people wonder, you know, what's the point of having these events? you know, couldn't you just record the stuff and, you know, get the information that way and distribute it without paying for the catering and all this stuff. But it's like the, the function of, you know, an organization going out to some other city and having an event there is to give a focal point for the people in that city who have those ideas to come to the event and then meet each other there. Yeah. So it's like, that's, I know that's part of the reason like the Mises Institute, you know, has traveling events rather than just having everything in Auburn is because if they go to some city, then all of their donors or interested people who want to go see Tom DiLorenzo talk on antitrust or whatever, they show up and then they, oh, wow, I, you know, I thought we were all alone out here in Philadelphia or whatever it is. 
Exactly. And I, mean, I guess that would be even more so in California. Yeah. Well, we're relational beings, so we want to be with others. And then it also helps you, you know, develop your ideas. You may be slightly interested in a subject and then discover that you're really interested in a subject. And then ideally, you're also being equipped by the ideas and the information. So when you go out into your everyday life and you're confronted with somebody who's saying something nonsensical, you can give a friendly, rational response to it mm-hmm. rather than just staying silent in the face of, you know, falseness. And we really, we need to do that. We need to equip people to be able to engage with the broader culture with the ideas and in a loving and uh, engaging way. Exactly. So can we talk a bit about the independent review? And so you mentioned a few minutes ago, so that for people who don't know, the independent review is the journal that's associated with the Independent Institute, but it's a peer-reviewed journal, like yes. Mary was saying. And so I, I gather that was always part of David's vision and why, what function the Independent Institute would serve. And for people at home who don't know these nuances, so you could, like, like I do a lot of work for various free market think tanks and do studies, but there's a difference, like, like I had an article published on the carbon tax critique of William Nordhaus and the carbon tax that was in the independent review. And so on my CV, you know, that's a peer reviewed article and that just had this more scholarly or looks more authentic or what it would have carries more weight than just, Oh, a study put out by this think tank, right. even though at the thing that, you know, they have internal review processes and stuff, you know, they want to make sure somebody doesn't have a boneheaded mistake that gets out the door, but it's a different thing where, you know, whereas again, with, the independent review articles, that really is a scholarly academic journal. And so I'm taking it, Mary, that that was always part of his vision, that that's what we need to be able to say these are peer-reviewed articles. Yeah, well, he was a big believer in everything being peer-reviewed, that, you know, there is such a thing as objective truth and it can be discovered, but it also has to be tested. And anybody can put forth an opinion, but, you know, can you back it up with facts and so on? Books take a long time to develop. Um, mm-hmm. And the journal was really conceived of as being able to then address more things more topically, as well as timeless things. But mm-hmm. we have symposia on sort of current affairs and so on. So David had worked with Bob Higgs very early on. He'd become aware that Bob was working on a project that became Crisis and Leviathan, but needed funding to be able to complete it. David was able to get him that, actually through Murray Rothbard, was able to help him tap into a fund, fund Bob Higgs's work to do Crisis and Leviathan, which David then also got placed with Oxford University Press to publish in 1987, which is a you know just a classic, and it's certainly more true all the time. So Bob became research director of Independent in the somewhere in the probably mid to late 90s, and together they decided to launch the Independent Review. And Bob became the founding editor of it. Mm -hmm. In addition to its being peer-reviewed, they also wanted to be interdisciplinary because, you know, economics is great, but history Mm -hmm. is also very interesting, as is law and philosophy. And they're all interdisciplinary. So wanted something that would cover, you know, the gamut and not just be a very narrowly focused. And then very importantly, in the words of Bob Higgs, I think in the founding statement was, We believe that English is a language, too, and (laughs) insist that it's written in a accessible, 
more conversational style and keeping graphs and figures to a minimum and only as necessary. But it's aimed to be able to be read by somebody with, you know, undergraduate or above level. It does, you know, isn't this esoteric journal that you get your paper published in, it goes on the shelf and that's the end of it. It's meant to be read and it's meant to be evergreen. And certainly it seems to be. We have something like 30,000 articles downloaded each month and it's used widely in college courses and by others. So it's reaching a lot of people and I think does serve an important role in the industry, so to speak. Oh yeah, it certainly does. And so you had mentioned how it was interdisciplinary and not just focused on economics. Right. And then, you know, mentioning Bob Higgs and, you know, his work on, for people who aren't familiar, like Bob did some great stuff on the ratchet effect is one of them. Just saying how like during ostensible emergencies or crises that the government expands its power. And then once the crisis subsides, the government does pull back, but it never goes back to the pre-crisis level. And so over time, you know, the scope of government power and budgets and stuff, you know, ratchets upward. That's what the term means. But in general, there's like a sort of anti-war streak in that. And so that's what I was going to bring up, Mary, is that there are plenty of like free market organizations, think tanks and whatnot that they're all sound on economic stuff. You know, like, oh, we're against, you know, high, we, we don't like capital gains taxes. We don't like the minimum wage and so on. But a lot of them don't say anything about war. Whereas I know independent, you know, that's something that certainly they're not shy about discussing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, Profoundly. So yeah, Bob's Higgs's crisis in Leviathan, as you said, traces crises. And most of the crises are war of the 20th century. Well, actually it starts with the civil war and then the wars of the 20th century and the great depression and so on, when government just expanded beyond anything having to do with the actual crisis. 9-11 was certainly a watershed moment for us and a real trial of David's soul. On the day of 9-11, we're on the West Coast, so it was earlier for us. Obviously, we were all shaken up badly, but David immediately recognized that, you know, oh my God, the government is going to grab this and they are going to seek enormous amounts of power and infringe on the liberties like we've never seen before. And we have to get in front of this. And so he Mm -hmm. insisted that we draft up a statement that day and put it on our homepage against some internal objections that it would seem insensitive. But mm-hmm. he was insistent. So we did put it, we replaced our homepage with a statement, certainly expressing sorrow of the events, but then also very powerfully saying, this must not be allowed to be used as an excuse for the government to expand and, again, infringe on our rights. We almost immediately joined people. There was a group of venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who put together a bounty fund for getting bin Laden. And we were putting forth statements calling for letters of mark and reprisal, which is essentially bounty hunting to bring the perpetrators Mm -hmm. of 9-11 to justice privately. And importantly, bounty hunters are also held accountable for any innocent lives or property that they destroy. And we were advocating for that to be the proper response to the attacks, justice, not revenge. 
But the really, really hard part of that whole time was that so many others with whom we'd been working for years in the liberty movement were calling for war and were calling for turning the sand into silicone, mm-hmm. you know, or in other words, nuking the Mideast mm-hmm. and just taking peace off of their mastheads and just getting— it Literally? Literally, taking the word peace off their, off, off oh, of their wow. masthead mm-hmm. and silencing— any dissenting voice within their organizations and so on. So we started at the Center on Peace and Liberty. But it was really, really soul-wrenching for David because he held so strongly that these ideas, you know, accorded with a respect for every human life and the liberty of every person and was just amazed that those he thought held the same beliefs were so ready to support mass murder. And it really sent him back to sort of core values. And that's when he started the C.S. Lewis Society of California because he said, you know, we have to get people understanding what lies at the base of the ideas of liberty, where these ideas come from, where the principles come from. And it's really rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition of the sanctity of human life from which come rights and mm-hmm. so on. As the Spanish scholastics unpacked, which then, as you know, led to the Austrian school and so on. So he really immersed himself in that whole literature. And as he had earlier in his life become experts, a self-read expert in, in the ideas of liberty and economics and Austrian economics and so on, In the early 21st century, he really immersed himself and became a self-taught expert in the traditions of natural law theory and the writings Mm -hmm. of the great Judeo-Christian philosophers and thinkers. Wow. So can I ask you, and you know, obviously you don't need to name names. I'm I'm not looking at that. I'm just wondering, because I had thought there were, I had Jacob Hornberger on the show a few episodes ago, Mary. And I brought that up too, like to say, you know, just to pat him on the back and say, I remember, you know, I'm, <laughs> um, that it's, I was in grad school at the time, but yeah, when 9-11 happened, you know, it was Jacob Hornberger was one of the few people right out of the gate yeah. saying, whoa, you know, that's invade Iraq. Are you guys insane? Hang on a second here. And yeah. you know, going through that. And it was very, and he was saying how it was very lonely that his donations dropped off a cliff and yeah. people were denouncing him, you know, he was getting death threats and stuff. And it was it's hard now for people, especially younger people who, you know, were not of political age at that point to, to know that stuff. But it was extremely brave, you know, for what you're telling me you guys did, you know, to have that message up on right after it, it happened. So where I'm going with this question, though, Mary, is I had just thought a lot of libertarian organizations, like especially the D.C. ones, they privately agreed, oh, yeah, this is going to be used, but let's not stick our head out. But are, but are you saying you actually know a lot of them? they actually wholeheartedly believe in this stuff. In other words, they weren't just like fitting in with the crowd, but they actually did want to go, you know, let's go nuke some Muslims, basically. Yeah. Yeah. There were both. Mm -hmm. Those who simply said, well, we don't want to alienate our donors, so we're not going to say anything, and so shut up and don't talk about it. And But then there were others who were definitely part of the, yes, we must must go to war, we must invade, we must Mm -hmm. do these things, we must support you know, the 
dissolution of the Constitution and so on. I mean, not in so many words, but that was right, the, right. That was the like, end. yeah. This, hey, this is wartime. The Constitution's not suicide. But Jacob pack. was yeah. organizing good events. We were organize, We organized. <laughs> one of the first things we organized was an anti-war event with Gore Vidal here in San Francisco. He put out a really great book called "Endless War for Endless Peace," as I recall, and so. It was at a big theater in San Francisco, and it attracted, as you can guess, mostly a left-wing audience, and mm. David didn't want you know, it just to be Gore Vidal, so we had a panel of experts with us, which was Bob Higgs and Bart Bernstein from Stanford and a couple of others. And so as people were kind of coming into Tom Moore at Hoover and so on, so as I was, we were checking people in and so on, they're sort of grumbling about, well, what's somebody from Hoover doing here? And what are mm-hmm. these? Da, 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 da. But it was great because Gore Vidal was certainly giving a very great address on history and the and warning against the current. It was before the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. It was very early in 2002. But then, you know, Bob Higgs would chime in with where goods do not cross borders, troops will, and so on. And that got booze from the audience, but it was an important message for them uh-huh. to understand that, you know, uh-huh. free free trade leads to peace. You know, right. you have to understand that. And we held a whole lot of events. And we opened up an office in D.C. and we held a lot of events there, just pounding the message over and over again against the USA Patriot Act, against all these things. There were very, I'd say, Mises, Jacob Hornberger's Future of Freedom Foundation and Independent were really the three voices that were up front on this. Yeah, yeah. And, and apologies to anybody out there for forgetting you. But yeah, those if I had to brainstorm, those were certainly the ones that were on my map at the time. I do want to continue with, you know, uh, these sort of catching people up to the history. But given what's going on right now, Mary, do you have any thoughts? I mean, I'm, I don't know if you've seen like Zelensky, they've got video of him t- recommending to NATO almost in so many words that they should launch a nuclear first strike on Putin. Like, don't wait for Putin to hit first. We got to, and it's, they're giving the public all these like PSAs about if there's a nuclear strike in your city, like it seems like they're sort of warming people up to the idea, like to make this a fait accompli that, oh yeah, there's going to be a, an exchange, but probably it'll be limited. It'll just be tactical. And so no big deal. Like it's really shocking to me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just one thing after another, right? So you know, first they had the huge power grab of the last now almost three years. And once that starts dying down, you got to have something. So now we've got Ukraine and Russia. Not that, you know, Russia didn't invade Ukraine, but this is just insanity. You know, it's have we learned nothing from past incidents just over and over and, and again? And what just to follow what you're saying there, how you, how you said, you know, of course, Putin did invade and we're against that and everything. I, on Twitter, I was being somewhat of a wise aleck, but I said something like, hey, remember back when the Bush administration just had this constant drumbeat to support an invasion of Iraq and the media went along with it and it turned out to be mostly BS? Yeah. No, no, you know, no reason I'm bringing that up, just bringing that up. And yeah. somebody was like, oh, so why do you libertarians like keep making excuses for Saddam? He was a bad guy. As if my point was, you know, Saddam was a, was a, you know, I would have him be a babysitter for my kids or something. Like, yeah, exactly. It's amazing the level of discourse that, oh, if there's a bad man somewhere in the world, of course we need to bomb that country. There are bad actors all over the world. You know, how do you defeat bad actors by, this is not how you defeat bad actors. Well, if I could go back to the, uh, the letters of, what is it, Mark and Reprisal? Mark and Reprisal, yeah. Yeah. 
So that just for people who don't know, so that's something Ron Paul had brought up too, like in terms of dealing with, you know, Osama bin Laden. Right. And people, of course, mock him. This is, but, you know, do, use a domestic analogy just in case people have never heard this before. Like, let's say some guys rob a bank and then they run into an apartment complex. The police don't surround the property and then just start bombing the building, you right. know, killing 500 tenants, but getting the bad guy. I mean, yet that's what the military does if, you know, they think some guys in Afghanistan, you know, even though it was mostly Saudi Arabia, according to the official story, still like that's, you know, you don't go to war with the whole region just because you know, oh, in there are interspersed some bad guys. Like that's, right. that doesn't work anywhere else. And if they, if the police acted that way, people would rightly be outraged. And yet when it's foreign, it's a really interesting like, history too, because, you know, the founders didn't initially believe in a standing Navy. So mm-hmm. in order to provide for the defense of our water surrounded country, they issued letters of mark. There was a lot of pirates, you know, flailing the high seas as well as warships. And so these were called so-called privateers, which is private ship owners, would arm themselves and be out on the high seas defending the country against pirates and defending the country against other military action and so on. And they were allowed to keep the ships that they captured the value of the ships and its cargo that they captured, bring the pirates in for justice or the, you know, the soldiers or so on in for justice. But as I mentioned, if they harmed innocent civilians or actors or property in the process, they were liable for that. And they were very effective. They actually, it's my understanding, eventually were discredited by those who wanted a standing Navy (laughs) hated how bad they were making professional uh, naval people look, so they fell out of favor. But Alex Tabrock's done a lot of work on bounty hunters, sort of Mm -hmm. domestic bounty hunters, and how effective they are. So the concept was you create a bounty, and again, these Silicon Valley zillionaires were proposing putting up, I forget how much, 10 million or 50 million or something, for the capture and return of the people responsible for 9-11. Now, imagine if we'd gone that route, we could have saved the 10 years until the Navy Mm -hmm. SEALs went in and supposedly got bin Laden and killed him and dumped him overboard or something. You know, effective private bounty hunters or mercenaries, if you will, likely could have found him and brought him in and we could have saved 10 years of blood, treasure, and the destruction of American liberty and privacy. But, I mean, not to mention Afghanistan is not exactly, you know, the best place to live yeah. right now. Uh. And it's We have a um, new book coming out in December by Chris Coyne called In Search of Monsters to Destroy. And it's a wonderful, well, it's a horrible Wonderfully written, right. but horrible story to read about all of the actual outcomes of our presence in Afghanistan. You know, poppy production, multiples, I can't even count how many multiples went up. All of the stated ends achieved exactly the opposite. And it's just, we have to read, the, we have to learn from these things and stop doing it over and over again. And you're exactly right. Now everybody wants to do it in Ukraine, except with far more horrific results if this turns into nuclear exchange. God, it's unthinkable. And what, what is extra 
weird, ironic, perverse, I don't know what word to use, is that how things have flipped. I guess a lot of it is due to Trump and how he kind of messed everything up, like in terms of warped political spec. But it's mostly liberal Democrats, progressive Democrats, who are really gung-ho on, you know, pro-Zelensky and Putin's a monster and we got to not, you know, and negotiate. Why would we negotiate? And it's a lot of right-wingers who are, oh, well, let's just, you know, have a managed peace with Russia. And it's like the... So like, um, you know, there's Dr. Strangelove clips that I can use and deploy them against leftists when, of course, the original movie was making fun of right wingers. Yeah. And exactly. it's just weird how that has flipped. And Yeah, we have a Dr. Strangelove movie poster in our, <laughs> out in our hall. So <laughs> absolutely. It would be funny, except it's so scary and it's tragic. Right, right. No matter, how, like, the, I guess it's, no matter how this comes out, it's going to be bad. Yeah. But, yeah and we, again, like you say, it's. None of this is to me. I mean, obviously, the people whose cities are getting invaded one way or the other, that's, you know, it's not that that's nothing. But again, it, there's bad things in the world, and it's not obvious that U.S. bombers are the Right, the and we're all, we're all welcome as individuals to, you know, go to GoFundMe and support the actors of our choice. But it's absolutely absurd for this country to be sending billions of dollars to an unaccountable government when, <laughs> why them? Right, right. Well, let me, uh, I'm just, I'm watching the clock here. I do want to touch on some more topics. So you you brought up, I was going to ask you about David's, you know, affiliation with the C.S. Lewis Society. He's also written a lot himself. Is there anything that, you know, you, like in terms of, you know, you know, things that he really held dear and like some of the stuff that he was the most proud of? Yeah, he wrote a lot of drawing from C.S. Lewis. He didn't write a lot Traditionally, he devoted most of himself to advancing other people's careers, but because of the importance, he felt the importance of getting these ideas, Lewis's and others' ideas, back into the public square and part of the conversation, and others were not drawing these aspects of Lewis's work. Lewis was a brilliantly insightful political economist, you know, really mm-hmm. understood mm-hmm. the political economy and understood the nature of man and so on. And David really mined that for several very insightful articles and kind of went on the lecture circuit on, you know, the natural law and the relationship of these ideas to liberty and so on. And it was important kind of on a two-way, he saw it as important on a two-way basis. One is mainstream Christians, as you probably know, you know, have a tendency to go kind of socialist and support mm-hmm. war and other bad things that we would say does not accord with Christ's teachings. So he wanted to reintroduce Christians to the implications of Christ's teachings, which, you know, again, were things that the Spanish scholastics unpacked and certainly Lewis unpacked in a very accessible way. So he really wanted to help them understand that, you know, this is the implication. If you embrace Christ's teachings, this is what it implies for the culture, the government, how people relate to each other and how we relate to others in the world. And then importantly, kind of where he started was he wanted people in the liberty movement widely to understand that if they really believed in liberty, they had to understand that it's part and parcel of the sanctity of created life. And you do not infringe on that. The ends do not justify the means. Mm-hmm. and so on. So that was 
he was very impassioned about that and spent a lot of time on it. And I, I think it has helped get it out in front of people. Oh yeah. And it's, I'm glad you, you rephrased or that you brought that up again, because I did, you had mentioned that five minutes ago and I wanted to come back to it. Yeah. I have noticed more recently, especially like, you know, during COVID and th- and just seeing the way certain people that I thought were like, you know, the thought very similar to me, like in in this new scenario, like, whoa, they're, they're making arguments or taking stances that aren't where I'm coming from. And it just in general, it seems like, oh yeah, there were a lot of people who are for the standard, you know, tenets of libertarianism, you know, with a small L, but they're coming there from different reads. Like, so, and I don't know if this is the best way to, to make the delineation. And, you know, Mary, I'm curious at your thoughts, but for example, it seems some people come to these ideas because they take principles very seriously. They really do believe in property rights and, you know, human rights and things like that. And so, Hey, nobody's above the law, not even politicians, not even police, not even soldiers. And that's why, you know, taxation theft or whatever you want to say. And that's why war is mass murder. And so that's why I hold these principles. that I'm just taking the same moral rules that apply to regular people on a daily basis and applying them to everybody because I'm consistent and that's, you know, libertarianism pops out of that framework. But there's other people who are, I think, drawn to libertarianism because they're saying, I don't want anybody telling me what to do because uh-huh. there's no such thing as morality or, you know, everything's subjective. Yeah. There's no objective rules. And so I don't like the government saying I can't go do X, Y, and Z or they'll throw me in a cage. Well, I want to. And then there's these yeah. libertarian speakers who want to reduce public support for the government getting in the way of what I want to do with my life. And so yeah. that's why I'm attracted to these body of ideas. And so we all kind of agree that, oh yeah, drugs should be legalized and you know war should stop and taxation should be rolled back. But the motivations for the supporting of that, and I think in a lot of cases are drastically different. Yeah. Well, like drugs should be legalized, but there should be a really strong educational effort to make people understand that they're not good for you and you should not be using them. You know, there is an ought. And the latter that you're talking about often doesn't believe in the ought, just the, you know, what I want or, you know, what can be. And we care about what ought to be, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and again, it's, uh, I don't know if that dichotomy was always there or got enhanced. I've just become more aware of it, maybe just because Twitter and Facebook allow more rapid communication and you can see where more people are coming from. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe those people have been thinking like that for 20 years and I'm just finding this out now. Well, there's always been a certain amount of it, but I don't think the stakes were that high. So in the 80s, you know, we'd go to conferences and there'd be sort of libertarian type conferences and you'd have all these weird exhibits. So you'd have next to the, like we'd be there displaying books or have Liberty Tree materials or whatever. And then across the room, there'd be a table that was manned by the North American Man-Boy Love Association and mm-hmm. just kind of going, really? Mm. So it's always been a strange melange, but I think it's, you know, again, the stakes have just gotten higher and higher in the 21st century between the total dissolution of the Constitution and rights after 9-11 and then the last three years of, you know, the crisis justifies the total turning every petty tin pot civic elected official into a dictator, absolute dictator is just amazing. Two days after the ordered lockdowns here, again, we did a an online video called, you know, Fear the Fuel of Government Power, taking again from Bob Higgs's work, but just saying, look, <laughs> these lockdowns are not 
the correct prescription for this problem and we ought not be agreeing to them and be careful kids here comes mm-hmm. here comes another ratchet right exactly yeah yeah i mean it's a cliche at this point but the you know the whole two weeks to flatten the curve yeah if americans had been told at that point oh here's what's in store the coronavirus could have had a much worse death toll and whatever at that point. And they would have said, well, no, we're not letting you take away, right. you know, 18 months of our lives. That's crazy. Yeah, and destroy but our the way that happened future. was just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had brought this up before. I didn't realize. I do want to give you a chance. Can you talk a little bit about your work on the homeless problem? Because, you know, people are hearing these horror stories, especially coming out of Calif- certain California cities. And I know you were saying you, you also, like, in your role with the Salvation Army, this is something you've been looking at for a while. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, and thank you for asking about it. It is something that's been especially important the last few years. So I have been on the San Francisco Salvation Army Board for too long, 20-something years. And it's always been a problem in San Francisco, but it's just everything you see on TV is true. Mm -hmm. So about four years ago, our San Francisco Salvation Army Board did some strategic planning, and identified homeless as an area in which we could have a really positive impact. We own a lot of property in San Francisco that's just ripe for redevelopment, for residential programming, for people to be able to restore their lives. And the Salvation Army is uniquely positioned in doing that and helping people transform their lives and redeem their lives into being who they've been created to be. Mm-hmm. And as we got into the planning process, though, so as a researcher on the task force, I was assigned to do research into, well, what's driving homelessness? And then, you know, what are alternative solutions that may be working elsewhere that we should be considering? So I started looking into it, and it just it was like, this makes absolutely no sense. The spending thrown at homelessness is just doubled, quadrupled, quintupled, whatever. And meanwhile, homelessness is going up right alongside it. And nobody seems to be paying attention to the fact that the more they spend, the more homeless they get. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it also was apparent from conversations we were having with other agencies and with people in the city and so on, that there was just this very narrow focus, almost religious focus on one and only one approach, which is the housing first and harm reduction solution. And one size fits absolutely everybody, no matter what their problem is. So I realized this is, we're really going to need to have some ammunition on our side in order to build to do anything in San Francisco, you have to have public support, whether or not you're taking public money. You have to have mm. the community support to get permission to do what you want to do. And plus to go out to donors and say, like, we're proposing raising hundreds of millions of dollars to do something that nobody else is, you know, that nobody else thinks, you know, was the thing to do. So independent got involved by producing what was going to be the really rigorous case for support of alternative approaches and also proposing, you know, again, doing rigorous analysis of the policies that are driving the problem. And then importantly, pointing to alternative solutions that would have a differentiated outcome. So we did the policy report and it's very good. And actually people across the political spectrum really like it and they recommend it and use it. But, you know, policy reports, not everybody sits Mm -hmm. around reading them. Oddly enough, I 
don't understand, but they don't. So we decided we'd do a, a documentary mm-hmm. that would help people understand who's homeless, why they're homeless, and importantly, how to address it to reverse this challenge. So we went to our friends at Emerge in Order who do our LoveGov series and mm-hmm. John Papalow was just like, ah, we've been waiting to do a subject, you know, something on homelessness because Austin, where they are, similarly has a really big problem. So we got together and we produced this documentary called Beyond Homeless, Finding Hope. And as we're talking with John about the project and so on, in one of the Zoom calls, he says, well, you know, who's going to be the host of this? And I said, oh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I'll get back to you. So I came over to David's office and I said, David, John wants to know who, who's going to host this. And David said, well, you have to do it. And I went, mm-hmm. me? So the next time I was talking to John, I said, well, John, you know, David thinks I should do it. And I could just see John going, yeah, David thinks his wife should do this. Okay. So, so he kind of additions <laughs> me right there and then. Okay, well, Awkward. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about it. <laughs> and so we talked for quite a while, maybe 15, 20 minutes, at the end of which he said, you absolutely have to do it. And I trust John's professionalism to believe him and mm-hmm. that faith. So given his saying that, I said, okay. All right, whatever. So we filmed the documentary. I think they just did. I mean, I know they did a really good job with it because we've been in mainstream film festivals across the country. In fact, we're in the San Francisco Short Film Festival this weekend, which is a mainstream progressive film festival. And we've been winning laurels and getting accepted. And again, we've been doing screenings across San Francisco with very mixed audiences, and everybody, it Mm -hmm. resonates with everybody because it's very solutions-oriented. We're not attacking anybody. We're simply saying these are individuals who have individual reasons for becoming homeless, and we have to be meeting them with individualized resources that they can use to get their lives turned around. And it's a very appealing message. We've been doing a lot of media around it. And really, the narrative here is changing. You never used to be able to actually even say the word recovery. It's a dirty word. I would sit in rooms with people, Mm -hmm. homeless advocates, who would look you in the eye and say, well, we believe that these are adults and they have a right to decide to use drugs and you can't Mm -hmm. interfere with that. And I'd be thinking, but, you know, if you're addicted, your choice has sort of been removed from you. and we not be Mm. offering the opportunity to break free of that slavery and so on for those who want to do so. And now that attitude is being accepted more and more. And so I'm very hopeful, including among government officials and the wider public. And then it used to be the only solution to homelessness was to build everybody their own apartment and move them into it. You know, these $600,000 million so-called permanent supportive housing. And they were supposed to have supportive services, but they spend all the money building the housing. And plus the services are sort of, they're kind of there if you want them theoretically, but they really aren't. Mm -hmm. So, and transitional housing had a dirty word, was a dirty word, but now it's also being accepted that, well, for some people, we need to be offering that. So it's, I'm very heartened about it. 
The point of focusing on San Francisco is not just because we're here, but because it's widely viewed as sort of ground zero for homelessness. If any national news wants to do a story, they come here and they roll their cameras and there it is. So our feeling is if we can show impact, positive impact here, we'll have really outsized impact across the country. Well, that's very encouraging. The video, is that up like like it's available? Yeah, we have a website dedicated to it called beyondhomeless.org. And the documentary is available there, as well as we have a lot of, you know, if you want to wonk out on it, there's a lot of material to wonk out on too. Sure. Okay. So folks, if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 251, I'll, you know, get links for Mary and put all this stuff up there so you can find it. So Mary, was this, is this the first major thing that you had been the host for? Oh, for independent yeah. or is, or not? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Okay. I've, I've never been the so public. Now face that you did this, like, do you have a taste for it? And now that you did this, do you have like a taste for it? And you're going to do more, or is well, this, I, you have think, a pa- I have a passion for this subject. And now that now that David's passed on, and I've been made chairman and CEO mm. of Independent, presumably I'll also be more of the public face of Independent. Sure. I'm not anything close to the intellectual that he was. And I don't, you know, I'm, I know a lot about homelessness. I know a little about a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. David knew a lot about pretty much everything. But I'm increasingly comfortable if we need somebody to mm-hmm. talk to the media briefly. I don't mm-hmm. mind doing it. So you might turn on to be like the Kanye West of public policy, oh, where before you were in the studio what and a, now that's, you're... <laughs> What a vision, yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, okay, well, okay. Um, so can you, you, you sort of set up the, uh, what I was going to ask as we're sort of winding up here. The What is, you know, your vision for, you know, you're in charge now and like, you know, do you have a vision that you'd like to explain to the viewers and listeners as to what independence going to do going forward? Well, for now, I consider my most important role to make sure that we uphold the principles, the founding principles, and that we do stay true to the methodology mm-hmm. that everything is peer-reviewed. It must stand on its own. And then it must be an important addition to the information that's available in the public square. David was really entrepreneurial, and he also saw things coming ahead of time. He saw, he had we'd worked in healthcare a lot, but he knew very well that Obamacare was coming down the pike and was going to be a beast and went to John Goodman and said, you know, John, we really need a good book on this before this gets, you know, legislated on. And we produce priceless and things. So he was very good at seeing those kinds of trends coming. We're going to have to really unleash the power of our fellows in helping to shore up what we're now missing with David. He also was very well connected with every, he knew everybody, (laughs) knew everybody Mm -hmm, who's mm -hmm. doing work in the area and could just rattle off if somebody wanted to do a study on something. Oh, you need to talk to so, so, and had read all the literature so could similarly cite, oh, well, you should go read this, that, the other thing. So we're really going to have to, you know, again, draw on our fellows more. And we're actually looking to fill in one or two more positions that can help bring in that human capital that we've lost with David. I see my role as really being the, making sure that we stay to our North Star. I worked with David for more than 30 years, I think. I And we work, we work together, we live together, we talk together a lot. And I think I mm-hmm. understand and share on a very deep level 
the commitment to those principles and can make sure that we do adhere to them. But again, David, it's primary role also was supporting the work of others, including Mm -hmm. in making academics understand when an opportunity to speak to the media came along and they were uncomfortable because that wasn't exactly within their little specialty saying, well, yeah, but if they don't talk to you about this, the next person they go to is not going to be as good as you would be. So why don't you do it? And helping encourage people to do that sort of thing. And then really applying marketing to the books and to the fellows and so on and really promoting. There's scores of people out there whose careers he promoted a great deal and I think who recognized that his promotion was instrumental in advancing their careers mm-hmm. and having an impact in the world greater than they might have had otherwise. Well, with you having said that, I guess it's appropriate for me to say, because I was debating whether I should bring this up because I don't want to make it look like it's about me, but this is, I'm complimenting <laughs> David that my book choice with you guys, you know, he came to me and said, hey, Bob, you know, the, really there needs to be a 300-page-ish book explaining human action, distilling it down that an undergrad could read. And, you know, so that's what I did for you right. guys. And then he went that's out. Masterful. And my joke at the time, Mary, when I saw all the blurbs that David had gotten of various people, like dozens of people praising the book, I was asking him, like, did you have blackmail material on all these people? Like, I I was kind of blown away by uh, how much, you know, it was. So, you know, if I'm ever having a day of low self-esteem, I'll just go and pull and look at all those blurbs that David somehow got for me for that book. But my point being that, yes, when, you know, and, and this was just so you know, Mary, this was known in our circles, like as potential authors that somebody would say, hey, you know, David wants me to do this book for independent people would say, he's going to promote the heck out of it. So like, if you want to do it, it's not like you're going to put two years in this thing and then no one's ever going to read it. Like it's going to be a big deal. There's going to be a spotlight on it. You know, if that tips you over the edge to take on, you know, this big project. So definitely we knew that. And it's, it is somewhat of a shame because yeah, David was so much focused on advancing everybody else that like, he wasn't like as famous as other, you know, think tank or, you know, organization presidents might have been. So he was perfectly happy with that. And by the way, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to get those blurbs if the underlying work hadn't been excellent. So, I mean, well, well thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but still, I wonder, did he have dirt on people? Because it was... No, um, I've, ne- I've never heard that he did. So I don't think that was okay, the well, that's reason. Good. Okay. I think it was Phew. the people... All right. <laughs> plus, he was persistent, you know. People would say... Yeah, I'll take a look at it. He'd keep reminding them. Oh, remember you promised you were going to? Yeah. <laughs> and that's right, a lot right, of what yes. it takes. Yeah, is, you know, people want, indif- to, people want to be involved in something, but they get busy and they forget. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he was indefatigable, I think is a good word in that respect. Um, he had oftentimes would come off as very serious. Is there... Like, did, is there any, like, anecdotes of, like, a, like a silly side, like, like, things that a lot of people wouldn't know that you want to share? Oh, you or, my God. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, Bob. He was a master at hanging a spoon on his nose, which I never was able to do. And he delighted in doing We've been having so much fun pulling. We've got probably a dozen pictures of him at different events with a spoon on his nose and teaching everybody around him how to do a spoon. He had an extended, he was very silly and he delighted in, Mm -hmm. he really was always a child at heart, had a wicked, Mm -hmm. a a fun sense of humor, which is a great, you know, it's great to be, I'm sure your wife would agree with me. It's great to be married to a man with a great sense of humor. It just makes life really fabulous. (laughs) And once we had children and grandchildren, Mm -hmm. he just 
was whatever age they were and would be on the floor okay. playing with them, mm. being goofy. He delighted in playing with hand puppets. He had the silliest side of him that was just such fun. And and a lot of times we'd be out somewhere and we'd have to be explaining to people that he's kidding. Because <laughs> you know? they'd be looking at him well, like, It's funny what? you say that because, yeah, <laughs> because that's, as I'm sure you can gather, Mary, and like people who know me, like that's my sense of humor is usually pretty dry too. And then, you know, Dave and I would be talking about some book project on the phone and then he would say something and then I would like, I'd be going the next and I'd realize like 30 seconds later, oh, he, that was a joke he just said. You know what I mean? And he, but he, like in other words, he was like more me than I was. And, it was, and I was like, oh, okay. This is what my, people must feel like when they're talking to me and they don't get it. Then I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, so, yes. Well, I think this is a good spot to wrap up. Folks, my guest today has been Mary Throw. Mary, thank you for the work that you've done and, and for sharing those recollections of David. We wish you the best of success and going forward with the Independent Institute. And again, just this thank you for your time. Thank you, Bob. Folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 251 to get links for all the materials that Mary referenced in this discussion. And we will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. 